0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: Yeah, check it out. Hey, Everything's now. I can feel the sunshine, the
0: There's something about live music, it's unique. It makes us feel different to just about anything else. It's wonderful that we have it back. But it's a lot more expensive now. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. This is the money. And today, what's going on with that?
1: It's a really interesting market, the market for live music. We have the traditional notions of economics where we can change prices, we can change supply. Those seem to not apply to the market for live music. Paul Crosby's at Macquarie University. He's an economist. With the supply side of it, for example, if you are a producer and you want to maximize profits and you see that there's lots of demand for your product, uh, what you can do quite often is you can increase the supply of that product to the market. But obviously, with the constraints of touring, the constraints of live music, that's a really difficult thing to achieve.
0: It's difficult to add extra shows, especially if the run of shows is part of a bigger run of shows.
1: Exactly. So with these logistically complex international tours, uh, a good example is Taylor Swift's. coming to australia that's part of an 18 country tour with over 100 shows and that means that these uh, the available dates you know quite often she only plays on a weekend are very limited which means if there is large demand it's really difficult to get uh, more shows added
0: as i understand that's what happened with brisbane isn't it exactly brisbane wanted a taylor swift show and uh, the venue up there said, look, we,
1: we can do this. Yep, yeah. and I think it was a uh, quote-unquote on hold for, for a tour date for Taylor Swift. Uh, and But it just didn't happen. Instead, there was uh, more dates added to one extra date in Melbourne, one extra date in Sydney. But the logistical complications of getting the whole touring show, all of the dancers, all of the uh, the crew up there in the staging, just was too complicated.
0: Okay, so from an economics perspective, if you can't add to supply, supply is constrained – And you've got unmet demand. Which means it ought to be possible to push up prices. And they absolutely have. But Paul says, for the most part, not as much as they could have. Because no artist wants to be seen to be gouging their audience. Instead, they're taking another approach.
1: Artists are... Practicing what we call price differentiation, selling different tickets for different prices. So I think there were seven different prices for Taylor Swift's concerts in Australia. So that is one way you can kind of get, um, you know, different willingness to pay met and get people paying a bit more. But the merchandise is another a big universal thing where if you have enough people through the doors of the concert venues, uh, they'll all purchase merchandise they'll purchase concessions and that can be another important revenue stream for artists and promoters because a significant portion of the people who go to a,
0: especially a concert where we might not see someone again for a long time yep. they're going to buy merch
1: i'm always amazed um you know harry styles toured australia recently the next day you walk around sydney city center and you can see people in harry styles t-shirts oh. and i'm sure when taylor swift is here you'll get the same the same phenomenon in the in your city centers
2: I first got really curious about this because I have been seeing Taylor Swift all over my Instagram feed this summer. So a lot of friends have been putting on their cowboy boots and their beaded bracelets and heading to stadiums across the country. And I knew from reading about it that these tickets were really expensive. And yet I was seeing so many people that I knew really snapping them up.
0: Laura Kelly's a journalist. She works at The Atlantic.
2: People were going to great lengths. I was hearing about people paying hundreds of dollars for tickets or flying to far-flung cities to attend the concerts with strangers. And at the same time I was seeing all this, I was um, constantly reading about and reporting on how inflation was making Americans' lives harder. I was talking to people who were struggling to afford groceries because prices had gone up so much or finding that they had to stop buying eggs because they had gotten so pricey at the grocery store. And so I just got really intrigued. You know, I thought, what is going on here that so many people are really spending huge amounts on these concert tickets like Taylor Swift and Beyonce and Bruce Springsteen, while at the same time we're sort of in a notably challenging economic moment in the U.S.
0: When Laura says people are spending huge amounts, she means it.
2: For Taylor Swift, um, some data from SeatGeek, um, they found that the average resale price for Taylor Swift era's tickets was $1,600, which is a pretty staggering amount. And um, Bloomberg reported recently that uh, Taylor Swift is making about $13 million every night of her tour in ticket sales. So that's not even including merchandise. So that really speaks to how much people are spending. And uh, she's expected to be on track to be on a billion dollar tour, which again is a pretty staggering amount. So I have heard about people who are spending $900 on nosebleed seats. So to go to a huge stadium and sit in the back row, I've heard about people who are spending $3,000 for floor seats. And again, these are not always necessarily wealthy people, but these are people who are really finding that this is what they want to spend their money on. And it's not only Taylor Swift. So Beyonce is on her big Renaissance tour this summer. And I have read about people spending $4,000 to see her shows, Um, the average resale price for uh, tickets to see her, according to that SeatGeek data, is about $460. And Bruce Springsteen is another big artist on tour this summer. And uh, according to that same SeatGeek data, the average resale price for tickets to see him is about $470. And uh, I was reading even last year about his tickets going for over $5,000.
0: A part of why is the pandemic. We spent a couple of years not going out. Artists spent a couple of years not touring.
2: These are incredible artists. These are sort of generational talents. And because the pandemic uh, sidelined them and they weren't performing in most cases for a couple of years, they're all going on tour at the same time. And so a lot of people are finding that, you know, it's, it's worth it. They've been sitting at home. They have been maybe listening to Taylor Swift all day, every day while they're bored and not doing anything. And now that she's on tour, they're sort of willing to do almost anything to make it happen. Um, In general, coming out of the pandemic, we have been seeing um, Americans spending a lot on services. So even as spending goes down in other categories like goods, services remains uh, responsible for a bigger part of overall inflation than in years past. So we really are seeing people wanting to shell out on these experiences.
0: In these circumstances, as we've already mentioned, people are willing to pay more. And a few artists have been prepared to test the market with what's called dynamic pricing.
1: So this is a, a big controversy in the ticketing industry, um, which is interesting because we see dynamic pricing that's charging uh, different prices based on demand. So some kind of, you know, usually algorithmic way to change prices. We see it in things like rideshare apps. We see it in aeroplane tickets. In the concert industry, it's uh, definitely there. It's, it's a bit more prevalent in America at the moment. Um, so it's in use, but it's definitely not popular amongst fans and quite often not popular amongst artists either.
0: I tell you what, you can't avoid it. If you go to a concert and then get to a big venue and then decide to get an Uber home, you are going to be dealing
1: with dynamic yep. pricing. Yeah, it's a big part of our everyday lives now, especially with app-based products, yep.
0: Right, so w- what what are the issues from the artist's point of view? Because as we know, dynamic pricing is really about getting the most you
1: possibly can given the situation,
0: why wouldn't artists press that button?
1: I think it comes back to the equity issue. I think it comes back to the same kind of underlying reasons why artists won't knowingly rip off their fans in terms of charging as much as they possibly can for individual tickets. Um, You know, as soon as you start pricing people based on different um, factors, you know, whether it's demographic factors or location factors or things like that, you're going to get pushback from fans, and we've seen a really uh, prominent case of that with Bruce Springsteen last year in America. Um, a portion, I think it was around ten or eleven percent of his tickets went on sale. They were dynamically priced, and it caused quite a quite a backlash to the artist.
0: I think the top end of that was pretty big, wasn't it? it?
1: Yeah. So I think people were seeing tickets for sale for advertised for sale around about four thousand dollars. I right. think the average price, the dynamic. Pricing push tickets up to about $260 US, uh, which is a bit more than people were used used to paying.
0: And what about, we've been talking a bit
1: about Taylor, because she's very much what got us thinking yeah. about this. Does she do this? So in America, I think some of her tours in the past have, have dabbled with dynamic pricing, and also uh, different uh, hooks to get people in, like, you know, watching videos and, and getting certain points to get ahead in the queue. So she's or her team has definitely um, had experience with kind of trying to incentivize people to, to queue for tickets. In Australia, the tickets for her tour weren't dynamically priced. They were, they were set at those kind of seven price levels that we spoke about.
0: Concert ticket inflation is especially high at the moment, but it's not new. Laura Kelly.
2: These Princeton researchers in 2005 researched what they called rockonomics, and they found that pretty consistently from the 1980s to early 2000s, concert ticket prices were outpacing inflation. So that's something we have seen over the past few years as well. So it's not totally new. There is some precedent for that.
0: Mm, But post-pandemic, that SeatGeek data, we've seen the average price jump from $116 in mid-2019 to 240 in mid-2023. That's doubled in four years, basically.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Those were pretty striking figures. Another figure that I thought was really interesting that I came across was Reuters reported that uh, the inflation rate for live performing admissions events is currently 2.6% higher than overall inflation in the US. So we're really seeing inflation being pretty high for concert tickets.
0: On The Money today, we're looking at live music. We've already touched on motivation. At the very top end, there are huge artists who haven't toured for years. We want to see them. But some of us want to see them much more than others do because we're in a relationship.
3: The relationship most of us have with our favourite celebrities is considered parasocial in that because of all the information we receive about celebrities through the media and social media, we feel like we know them. So, like, I know Taylor Swift's birthday, I know her parents' names, I know the name of her best friend, but she doesn't know anything about me. So it's this kind of one-sided, non-reciprocated relationship.
0: Georgia Carroll's a PhD student in sociology at the University of Sydney
3: because of how we feel that connection to the celebrity we're more likely to spend our money we're more likely to do things uh that let us feel closer to them because it does feel like we know them like one of our real life friends
0: and doing those things is going to cost us it is
3: definitely going to cost us
0: and Taylor Swift, and your research kind of underscores this, she's a special case, isn't she?
3: Yeah, she is. She's built her whole relationship on this idea of being people's friend to the extent where they want to spend money on her because she handpicks fans to meet her. Uh, She's doing this less since COVID, but... In the lead-up to COVID for her entire career, she would invite fans to her house to meet her backstage. And to do that, you had to be seen participating in certain ways. So you had to buy her merchandise. You had to be in costume at her concerts. You had to behave in a way that was noticed by her. And then there was the illusion of a reciprocated relationship because she would want to meet you.
0: If you do get to meet her, she makes it an unforgettable experience.
3: I always say it's very like a politician. So if a politician is at an event, uh, they'll have a handler who whispers things about the important guests in their ears so they can ask about people's children or their latest you know, work achievements. And Taylor does the same thing. She'll have somebody, although fans like to think she does it herself, she doesn't, it's her team, who will collate information. So when she meets the fans, she'll say, oh my gosh, congratulations on graduating, I saw you had a new boyfriend, your new haircut looks amazing – And it deepens the connection and leads to this reputation she has of really caring about her fans when it's just really carefully constructed marketing.
0: Yeah, but I tell you what, a politician probably wouldn't send anyone a surprise gift in the mail.
3: No, but Taylor does. She um, has been known to send presents for lots of reasons, but sometimes it seems just because we're a fan, will be noticed on social media and they'll receive packages. Uh, sometimes that'll have little messages that say, I saw this and thought of you and that kind of thing. So it really leads to this level of connection. And they kind of come out of the blue in that I assume a fan will be asked by her team for their address, but they're not sure why. And then a giant box of goodies comes and it's, yeah, it's really unique. She's the only celebrity that does anything like that.
0: That would be hugely, if you're a big Taylor Swift fan, and I'm, I'm not, um, it would be a hugely affecting experience.
3: It would be. And I am a huge Taylor Swift fan. And even though some of my research does get a bit critical of her marketing tactics, I still would do anything to, you know, get one of those boxes or to be noticed by her because the way she does it is just so clever. You can't help but kind of be like, oh, but I want to be noticed too.
0: So how do you get noticed? How do you get picked for a present or for getting to meet her?
3: It's still shrouded in a bit of mystery deliberately, um, but when you look at her team who are called Taylor Nation on Twitter um, and on their various social platforms, they notice the fans broadly who are spending money. So at the moment they'll be retweeting the fans who are at her concerts in America and who are at their concerts dressed up, so kind of going that step further than just rocking up in jeans and a T-shirt. Um, And they also uh, retweet and reshare fans who are spending a lot of money on merchandise. So uh, Taylor releases a lot of merchandise every year, uh, sometimes as much as a drop every two or three months, and they'll retweet fans who share their receipts. And so a fan will say, oh my gosh, I just went and bought these like 10 items. I can't wait. And the account will retweet them and say, wow, like so excited for you. But they're not retweeting anybody that's not out there sharing the receipts.
0: And there might be a picture of the receipts and the merch.
3: Yes, it'll be a screenshot of the receipts or then later on when they receive the merchandise, they'll share all the merchandise or in terms of in um, when things are in store, uh, Target in America last week released a special edition of her new Speak Now re-release and they were retweeting fans who were in store in Target buying stacks of the CD. And
0: Georgia, your research makes it clear, this isn't only about identifying as a fan, it's about status.
3: The fans are performing for Taylor but they're also performing for each other. They want to be seen as being the best fan and they know that the best fan has the expensive tickets, has all the merchandise, you know, has spent hours on their costume to go to the concert Um, and when fans uh, do this, they're noticed online and then they're also rewarded for being noticed by Taylor, by Taylor's team and they'll do things like put in their Twitter bio, noticed by Taylor Nation on this day and they'll see that their followers really increase when they do these things. Um, and often if they do get chosen to meet Taylor, they'll have a huge number of people following them and saying, can you please share my story, share me, so I can be noticed by Taylor too. And so they become these big fans within the fandom and get elevated to the top of a hierarchy.
0: So there's, yeah, there's a fan hierarchy. There
3: is a fan hierarchy, uh, which is a big thing my research looked at. A lot of people will argue to the extent of how much it exists and how it, how like, people can choose to play into it or not. But within the Taylor Swift fandom, because this goal is meeting her and um, getting attention from her, it's a really clear hierarchy that we might not see in a lot of other fandoms mm. where there kind of isn't this goal to be achieved. But when you're seeking the goal of her attention, you want to be at the top of the hierarchy because then you're noticed.
0: And to get up the hierarchy, you've got to make sacrifices in terms of effort and in terms of money.
3: Yes, you have to p- both perform labor, uh, like free labor. Basically, her fans are doing her marketing for her. They um, are helping build her reputation as like this best friend to her fans, Is this a nice girl, this like nice person who will do anything and really cares for her fans. That's all based on the back of the stories the fans are telling and the way she acts towards them um, and the fact that then they're willing to go, oh, my God, like she loves us so much. And then um, they just, yeah, have to purely spend. You know, her merchandise is so expensive and they're expected to keep buying it, not just the one. Uh, you know, she will release she released um, some the other day and then she has some at the tour and she'll release some again in a few months. You're expected to keep buying it. And then, of course, her concert tickets, they went up to over $1,200 and you're expected to buy those if you're a fan and can get them.
0: It sounds like it's framed as this joyous, amazing thing to be part of. But it seems very Darwinian too.
3: It's very much like that. And there is still that degree of just loving Taylor and wanting to share it with your friends that is still there, but because she has created this idea of of meeting her being a pinnacle and something that is obtainable in a way that it's not for many celebrities. Like, you know, you have Beyonce or whatever who sells similar ticket prices and similar huge tours. You can't meet Beyonce. But Taylor, she's opened that door to be like, if you just behave in the right way, here I am. And that is like makes all the difference and makes the fans willing to keep spending and spending for so many years.
0: And, and yet... Most fans are never going to meet her. It's it's going to be a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent of her fans who will yeah. ever meet her.
3: The the smallest number, but the hope stays alive because you just think it's a bit like buying a lottery ticket. You know, you're never really going to win, but there's a chance that you know the next the next jackpot, you'll be the one who wins like a hundred million dollars. And you've got to keep that hope alive, I think, is part of it.
0: And it's probably more fun than just buying a lottery ticket.
3: Yes, it's a lot more fun. And, you know, I know that there's no chance that I'll ever meet her, but I'm still going to go to the concert and you, there's still that part of you that's like, oh, but maybe maybe she. this will be the time.
0: Maybe it will be. Yeah. Maybe Taylor Nation's monitoring this program right now. <laughs> yeah. When Taylor Swift tickets went on sale in North America at the end of last year, even this most enthusiastic of fan bases started complaining about the prices. But they weren't blaming Taylor, they were blaming Ticketmaster.
2: I think that Ticketmaster has sort of emerged as a villain in all of this, fairly or not. Um, so, Ticketmaster, which sells tickets for a lot of these shows, uh, has been charging fees that a lot of customers are upset about. And one big reason too that there's been such a focus on Ticketmaster is that the Taylor Swift uh, pre-sale in November for her Eras tour was sort of a fiasco. Uh, A lot of fans who signed up to get tickets had to pay these crazy fees, or in a lot of cases, they weren't able to get tickets at all. And so that led to a lot of people being Really upset at Ticketmaster. It actually led to uh, Senate hearings uh, to investigate whether Ticketmaster was engaging in anti competitive practices. Uh, Taylor Swift herself came out and compared the whole debacle on Ticketmaster to bear attacks. And so they've really been getting a lot of the heat.
0: Which is understandable because in America, Ticketmaster occupies a choke point. On one side is the artist. On the other, the people who want to go to the concert.
2: So some artists uh, have taken a stand against Ticketmaster and have sort of taken these steps on behalf of their fans, they say, to try to help them out. So Robert Smith of The Cure was a big one. He successfully pressured Ticketmaster to refund some fees to his customers this spring. And Maggie Rogers sold some ticks for her upcoming tour in person. So she actually went in person to Williamsburg in Brooklyn, to the Music Hall of Williamsburg, and she sold tickets. So it's important to note, Maggie Rogers, for example, is still selling some tickets to her shows online. But it was sort of a statement that she decided that she was going to go in person and sell tickets.
0: Now, Paul, as an economist in Australia, you know that one of the things about us is that we... We have many markets that are dominated by only a few companies. Mm. And I'm wondering if we have an issue with that in terms of live music. As I understand it, we've got three big ones, Live Nation, who have Ticketmaster and Ticks and some agencies and some festivals and some venues. We've got, I think it's TEG, which are owned by a California company, Silver Lake. They own Ticketek and agencies and festivals mm. and venues and AG Frontier, who own festivals and agencies as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on. I think we've seen in America the big pushback against the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger. It's this case now where in America, a lot of the venues are owned by the people who are selling the tickets. And those people are also collecting a cut of the merchandise sales and things like that. So you've got this vertical integration that can lock artists into difficult situations where if they don't want to sign up for those kind of venues, it's really difficult for them to get other venues and to sell tickets. And I know in Australia, you've got, you know, similar, Live Nation is now part of the Australian uh, music industry. You've got those other two companies that you mentioned. So I think it's something to keep an eye on that, you know, at the end of the day, artists need to be able to sell tickets and play in venues that they want to play in, where they're remunerated fairly for what they do and able to sell tickets to the people who, you know, value them most, sell tickets to their fans. So it's something to keep an eye on for sure.
0: Regardless of whether too few companies have too much market power, there's still another actor pushing up prices, the scalper. These days, they use armies of bots to hoover up tickets online. But governments aren't completely powerless against that.
1: Taylor's show in Victoria was classified as a major event, which kind of limits the amount you can resell tickets for to about 10% over face value. And that's a a law that's already been in place in New South Wales, for example, where you can't resell tickets for more than 110% of the value. Now, The issue with that, of course, is if you're on markets that place this, so say Gumtree or eBay, um, you're explicitly asked to put how much the face value of the ticket was, and Mm. that limits how much you can resell the ticket for, and that's fine, Um, but there'll be places to exchange those tickets that are not quite as public-facing. That means that even though the laws are in place, it's a really difficult thing to stop. It is difficult, but governments
0: aren't on their own
1: here. You've got a lot of the, the companies and a lot of the artists also trying to come up with ways to solve these issues. Yeah, The general consensus is it's good to have the best fans in the venue, right? So if you've got the inability to increase the price, and then you've got the supply issues that we've spoken about. Then we have to go to these quite kind of um, old school methods, which are becoming increasingly popular. There's things like checking, you know, government issued IDs at the venue, which will take a lot longer to get people in, but hopefully it will mean the people who bought the ticket will be the ones attending.
0: So you have to verify before you're allowed in.
1: Yeah, verify like a check in, for example. Yeah. So that's one one way. You've got limits on the number of tickets that can actually be sold per person. So if you you want to buy five tickets, you might not be able to sometimes for big shows. It might just be two or four tickets. So all of these kind of ways to try and combat these scalpers to get the tickets in the hands of uh, people who want them the most.
0: Well, I'm here to tell you that when you queued up Back in the day, it was sort of part of it. It was part of what you did. If you
1: wanted to go and see that person, that band,
0: you queued and you might have to queue overnight.
1: Yeah, queue overnight. You'll meet people in the queue who you'll end up going to the concert with as well. Yeah, it's this kind of weird uh, facet of the ticketing industry that we're going back to these physical Mm. sales, going offline, um, all to combat this problem created by selling them online in the first place.
0: You just heard before about how artists like Robert Smith are pushing back against Ticketmaster. Well, Rock Band Rage Against the Machine is pushing back against the scalpers.
1: One way, theoretically, you know, and this is an interesting economic issue where you could kind of stop the secondary market is if you don't sell out in the first place. So you say you only sell 90% of those tickets and then you sell the remaining 10% closer to the time. It's hard for the secondary market to form because it's not sold out. The people will try and wait out for these Mm. last supply of tickets. Uh, Rage McGinch Machine, they sold those tickets, those last 10% of tickets for a higher than face value, but they kind of tried to price it underneath what the ticket scalpers would charge, so somewhere in between. So that meant that market didn't exist anymore. And they said it was quite successful in stopping scalpers. And with the extra money they raised from the tickets, they donated it to charity. So it wasn't a case of the band profiting from the higher ticket prices. It went to somewhere, an organization that they cared about.
0: That was successful, was it? Because it sounds, when you explain it, Paul, like this sort of win, win, win. Win for the band, mm. win for the fans, and charities win something too.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting case. And I think when you get to these kind of 100-plus state tours that, for instance, Taylor Swift is doing, the logistics might play into it a bit. It might be quite difficult to do that in every market, but it's a great case study. The Rage Against the Machine shows are a great case study in what can be done, but also how complicated it is, you know, the, mm-hmm. the mechanisms that need to be in place to kind of fix this issue.
0: So cutting scalpers out is hard. There probably are too few companies with too much market power. And concert ticket prices will keep going up faster and inflation but what if for all that live music is still undervalued laura kelly
2: live music is one of the most fleeting and scarce commodities possible you know to have one night with this special artist especially if there's someone that you've been streaming and listening to for years including during the pandemic which was a hard time for a lot of people if you're able to see them perform live that could be um priceless. And, you know, it's obviously not priceless because people are spending so much on it, but that could be a really significant experience. And I think that people coming out of the pandemic have been facing so many challenges and it was a lonely time for a lot of people, a really challenging time. They weren't able to do a lot of the things that they like. And so I think that there are some people who are just saying, look, I love this artist. This is worth it for me. This is what I want to spend my money on. And they're going and having these amazing live concert experiences.
0: Laura Kelly from The Atlantic. You also heard from Paul Crosby at Macquarie University and PhD student Georgia Carroll, who's at Sydney. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Ian Coon. I'm Richard Aydin.